Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. What is Agadah? And why is it such a fundamental aspect of Jewish education? What's the difference between Midrash Halakha and Midrash Agadah? How are we to understand these fantastical stories and relate them to our present day experiences? In this episode, we explore this and more. I apologize in advance. This is going to be a lengthy introduction, and I normally don't spend much time on introductions. But bear with me, because this is going to provide you with enough background to truly appreciate the interview that follows. Now, for those of you who don't know, Agadah or Agadata are tales or lore, the non-legalistic exegesis which appears in the classical rabbinic literature of Judaism, particularly in the Talmud and Midrash. In general, Agadah is a compendium of rabbinic texts that incorporates folklore, historical anecdotes, moral exhortations, and practical advice in various spheres, from business to medicine. We know very little about the biographies of the sages, other than these seemingly supernatural stories about them. Thankfully, classical rabbinic tradition sheds light on how we must approach these tales. Various geonim taught that we rely on these interpretations only when they are reasonable. Most famously, Maimonides taught that the words of the sages are interpreted differently by three groups of people. And I quote, The first group is the largest one. I have watched them, read their books, and heard about them. They accept the teachings of the sages in their simple, literal sense, and do not think that these teachings contain any hidden meaning at all. They hold these opinions because they do not understand science and are far from having acquired any knowledge. They possess no perfection which would give them their own insights, nor have they found anyone else who would provide them with a similar understanding. Therefore, they believe that the sages intended no more with their deliberate and straightforward utterances than what they understand based on their own inadequate knowledge. They understand the teachings of the sages only in the literal sense, even though some of these teachings, when taken literally, would make even the uneducated, let alone sophisticated scholars, ask how anyone in the world could believe such things are, are true, let alone edifying. The members of this group are ignorant, and one can only regret their folly. Their very effort to honor and exalt the sages using their own meager understanding actually humiliates them. The second group is also large. When the people in this group read or hear the words of the sages, they too understand them according to their simple, literal sense and believe that the sages intended nothing other than what may be learned from their literal interpretation. Inevitably, they ultimately declare the sages to be fools, hold them in contempt, and slander that which does not deserve to be slandered. They imagine that they are more intelligent than the sages, that the sages were simpletons who suffered from inferior intelligence. The members of this group are so pretentious and stupid that they can never attain genuine wisdom. Most of those who have stumbled into this error are involved with medicine or astrology. How remote they are from true philosophy compared to real philosophers. They are more stupid than the first group. Many of them are simply fools. There is a third group. Its members are so few in number that it is hardly appropriate to call them a group, except in the sense that one speaks of the sun as a group or species of which it is the only member. This group consists of men to whom the greatness of the sages is clear. They recognize the superiority of their intelligence from their words, which point to exceedingly profound truths. Even though this third group is few and scattered, their books teach the perfection which was achieved by the authors and the high level of truth which they had attained. The members of this group understand that the sages knew as clearly as we do 
the difference between the impossibility of the impossible and the existence of that which must exist. They know that the sages did not speak nonsense, and it is clear to them that the words of the sages contain both an obvious and hidden meaning. Thus, whenever the sages spoke of things that seem impossible, they were employing the style of riddle and parable, which is the method of truly great thinkers. For example, the greatest of our wise men, Shlomo HaMelech, began his book by saying, to understand an analogy and a metaphor, the words of the wise and the riddles. All students of rhetoric know the real concern of a riddle is with its hidden meaning, and not with its obvious meaning. As Sefer Shoftim says, let me now put forth a riddle to you. Since the words of the sages all deal with supernatural matters which are ultimate, they must be expressed in riddles and analogies. Dr. Moshe Simon Shoshan of Yeshivat HaRetzion points out that the Rambam argues that at least some agotic texts must be read with careful attention to the poetic methods used by the rabbis. In a parallel passage in his Guide for the Perplexed, Rambam explains this idea using terms that are familiar to any modern student of literature. Poets often write using indirect methods such as metaphor. One needs to learn how to read poetry in order to understand this indirect method. Whether you're a novice or advanced student of Jewish studies, you're in for a real treat. The interview you're about to listen to was an eye-opening experience for us, to say the least. First, we'd like to thank our personal Rav, Rabbi Joshua Maruf, for turning us on to our guest's phenomenal works, which I'll get to shortly. Professor Jeffrey L. Rubenstein is a Skirball Professor of Talmud and Rabbinic Literature in the Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies of New York University. He received his BA in Religion from Oberlin College, his MA in Talmud from the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he also received rabbinic ordination, and his PhD from the Department of Religion of Columbia University. His books include Talmudic Stories, Narrative Art Composition and Culture, Rabbinic Stories, The Culture of Babylonian Talmud, Stories of the Babylonian Talmud, and The Land of Truth, Talmud Tales, Timeless Teachings. Dr. Rubenstein has written numerous articles on the Festival of Sukkot, Talmudic Stories, the Development of Jewish Law, and Topics in liter- Jewish Liturgy and Ethics. So without further ado, Professor Rubenstein. Thank you, Professor Rubenstein. The first question is, can you briefly explain the difference between Midrash and Agadah? And what is your methodology in deciphering Agadot? So great question. So first of all, Midrash is really a technical term that refers to biblical interpretation. The word Midrash essentially means interpretation. So Midrash is a subset of Agadah. Agadah in general, it's very hard to define, sometimes translated lore. Halakha is law. Agadah is lore, but Agadah can be understood as anything that's really not halakha, anything that's not law or legal, which includes stories and biblical interpretations, prayers, sayings. But one type of Agadah then is interpretation of the narrative passages in the Bible or the non-legal passages in the Bible. That's Midrash. And you can also have Midrash halakha, that is interpretation of the legal passages of the Bible is 
Midrash Halakha, it's interpretation where the rabbis try to generate laws or flesh out exactly what the, the legal path, the, legal, the laws of the Bible, the laws of the Torah mean. Um, so Agadah in, is much broader than Midrash Agadah. Midrash Agadah would just be one part of the Agadah. Those are, include interpretations of the stories in the Bible, um, some of the stories we know about Abraham, Abraham, about Isaac, all the biblical passage uh, figures that aren't really explicit in the Torah, but that have been fleshed out or made into legends are essentially Midrash Agadah. They originate as biblical interpretation, biblical exegesis. One of the large components of Agadah, though, that is not Midrash, are stories about the sages. And this is what I work on in much of my work. So stories about the lives and the deeds of the sages, stories of Hillel, stories of Rabbi Akiba, stories of Rabbi Yehud HaNasi, stories of all the great rabbis whose legal traditions are mentioned in the Talmud um, and in the Mishnah and the other rabbinic documents. Those are um, parts of Agadah that are not Midrash because clearly they're not based on biblical interpretation. And there are other genres of Agadah too. Um, there, there are sayings, there are astrological texts included in the Talmud. Um, there's dream interpretations. Um, there's some liturgies, that is prayers, formulations of prayers. Um, so all of those are components of the Agadah. Midrash Agadah is therefore one part of it, but the main part that I work on are the stories of, of the sages. Um, so you, you ask about the method about interpreting these, uh, these stories, and many of these, of course, are familiar to anyone who's had even a modest Jewish education. Um, the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiba, um, the Hillel and Shammai, and the converts who, who uh, come to them, or the Gentiles who come to them to be converted. I mean, these are stories we really teach from even in, in day school. Um, there's really a major, major understanding, at least in some circles, and particularly in traditional circles, about, um, about the, the genre, really, of these stories. Really, they're the form of biographical anecdotes, little vignettes from the, of the lives of the sages. And in many circles, these are taken as accurate history or accurate biography. They're seen as historical testimonies about what really happened to the rabbis. And this is really a misunderstanding of their genre. Um, these stories were are, are closest to what we would call didactic fiction. That is, they're didactic. They're there to teach lessons. They're there to teach morals. They're there to grapple with cultural problems that the rabbis experienced. Uh, they're to enrich the lives of the audience. They're not there to preserve what actually happened out of some commitment to objective history or dispassionate interest in historical or biographical truth. That's a very, very modern perception. Most ancient societies didn't really care that much about history or biography. Um, now I say they're closest to didactic fiction rather than history or biography because these categories that we use today did not really exist in antiquity or not exactly in the same form. And even the Greeks and Romans, who we really got history and biography from, I mean, even their understanding of what history meant and what biography meant is not exactly what our modern understandings of, um, of these types of literature is. Again, even for the Greeks and Romans, biography and history was a little closer to what we would call fiction. They weren't so interested in just preserving 
the record of what happened. They were, but again, not exactly in the same form. So the rabbis though, for sure, and most other cultures were interested in stories of the great figures in order to teach and to inspire their audience in part and to have the, help them negotiate all of life's tensions. So modern scholars for, for a long time, I mean, really since the beginning of the 18th century did try to write, write history and biography on the basis of these uh, stories. And they tried to piece together lives of Hillel, the life of Rabbi Akiba, the life of these great sages. And then in, if you put them all together, a kind of history of the Jews or the rabbis in the time of the Mishnah, the history of the rabbis in the Talmudic period. But scholars gave up on this about 50 years ago. I mean, since the 1970s, there was what we call this paradigm shift, where we understood all of a sudden that this project was essentially a failure and we misunderstood the genre of these stories, tried to take them as history and biography, but it didn't work. And one of the reasons scholars came to this conclusion was that they tried to write biography uh, on the basis of stories. And they found that the rabbinic stories relentlessly contradict each other. So if you try to write the biography of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, you know, one of our great sages from the time of the Mishnah, um, you can't do it because the, we have sometimes multiple versions of the same story. Sometimes the Babylonian Talmud will tell, give you one version of an episode in his life. The Jerusalem Talmud, the Yerushalmi, will give you another version of an episode in his life. There might be a third or even fourth version in one of the books of Midrash. And these all contradict each other such that it's impossible to figure out what actually happened. And also different stories about his life might give you different information. One, one story about a rabbi's life might suggest he came from aristocratic origins and another story somewhere else might suggest he came from poor origins. And so scholars tried to write biography and history and, and they found they couldn't do it. Now, this is one, one reason why they gave up on that endeavor and one reason we don't think these are historical or biographical. I mean, but another reason is just, if you look at these stories, they're just completely full of supernatural and miraculous events. Rabbis in some of these stories resurrect people, resurrect their colleagues. They will say a word and the sea will split. One rabbi, our famous Choni, Choni the circle drawer, sleeps for 70 years. Um, rabbis in many stories look at their opponents, turn them into a heap of bones with this kind of magical, uh, deadly gaze. It's, uh, I never learned that in rabbinical school. I always thought it would be handy. Apparently they did in Talmudic times. So, you know, and the rabbis also, they encounter demons, they encounter witches. They're all these supernatural events that make it clear that these are not historical or biographical tales. But it's even deeper than that. And the real reason is that in order to understand any form of literature, you, you, you have to figure, understand the genre of that literature. And when rabbis look very closely at stories, they realize they have a lot of literary features that you find in fiction, um, in, in folk tales that you don't find in history or biography. The names are often symbolic. The name of the character, the protagonist, or one of the characters often has to do with the themes of the story um, and, and it helps characterize the, the character so you know what's going on. There's a lot of wordplay, paranomasia. And again, to make a wordplay, you as the storyteller, the author have to have freedom to tell the story the way you 
you want to tell it in order to make the wordplay work. You can't always do that with biography or history because you're tied to a historical or biographical uh, truth. There are reversals, there's irony, there are all these literary qualities that we associate with, with fiction or with, with poetry. So when you look very closely at the genre of, uh, of these rabbinic biographical anecdotes, you see they're really closer to, again, what we would call didactic fiction and not history and biography. And to tell the truth, it was, it was really a, a, it's really a great shame to, to study the stories in a historical or biographical way and not really as literature or as fiction, because what you end up doing is, is trying to get back to some sort of putative biographical or historical truth. So you might take all the stories of Hillel, let's say, and figure out because they contradict which ones are more reliable and which ones are less reliable. Scholars would write the, the biography of Hillel on the basis of the more reliable versions, but then they ignored the other versions. So if you had three versions of one episode in his life, you know, they might choose one as what they considered most reliable. And then the others were seen as corruptions. They were seen as being transmitted incorrectly and, and therefore not worthy of study. But that's a great shame because each version was told by different storytellers to communicate different truths or to teach different lessons. And so what you want to do actually when you have multiple contradictory versions about a rabbi's life for a certain episode is to try to understand why the different storytellers foregrounded different lessons. Why was the Bobbly storyteller interested in X, the storyteller in Midrash Rabbah interested in Y and told that same version of that story in, in a slightly slightly different way. So this has really, I think, been the great, you know, advance of, of academic thinking of, of Talmudic stories in the last half century now is to try to explore these stories um, as, as literature and flesh out what exactly the storyteller is trying to say, rather than to get what we might say behind the story to what really happened in, in the characters character's life. And, and I feel that this is really something that um, it's begin to percolate down, you can see, out of uh, academic circles and into, you know, the popular culture. But in many traditional circles, I mean, I think there's still this, this reservation about saying these stories did not actually happen the way they're told in the Talmud, as if that's kind of heretical, or if that's you know, something that's unacceptable. But to me, it's just really a misunderstanding of what the storytellers were, were doing. And it's really more authentic um, to understand the stories the way the storytellers intended them, which is to try to pay attention to every detail and understand what the message is and not to take them as, as some sort of his, historical truth about, about the rabbi's uh, life. Um, so. Yeah, I think, I think actually, just to add to that, People feel like, you know, glorifying the supernatural elements of the story actually, you know, gives honor to the rabbis. But in fact, I think the opposite is is uh, being accomplished because you're it's taking away from the greatness of their, you know, their wisdom and uh, um, all of their beautiful, just all of their beautiful ideas are kind of being 
um, trivialized by these stories. The lessons become less important and yes. just to magnify the miracles right. is like the goal. Like, like you, we're going to touch on it later, but like the Chonia Magel, just in a nutshell, everyone focuses on the part of the, you know, the, the circle maker and, and the yeah. magic and the miracles, but like you're missing out on everything else. So I guess wow. we're going to get to that soon. No, that's, I mean, that's a great point. You know, we, we talk, uh, these stories are sometimes seen as hagiographic, hey, or there's a sort of fancy word, hagiography, hey, which is really about the lives of the saints. Um, and you know, it's this idea that we, the, the, these, these very important religious people, whether it's in Christianity or Judaism, the great rabbis, uh, were so perfect and so ideal, and they have their lives have to be understood in that sense, in a way we're not worthy of that, and we can never measure up to that. And certainly that is a theme. The rabbis are role models, and they are presented in many stories as exemplary in their piety, and we are supposed to learn from that. And, you know, the supernatural events, that was a part of the ancient world, and the rabbis doing these things was a part of what the storyteller was trying to teach us. But it's far more complicated than that. And if you actually look at some of these stories closely, rabbis often are, are, are portrayed as negative role models. They, they make mistakes. Um, they're criticized in these stories for how they treat their students or their parents or whatever it is. You know, you can learn from both the positive role models and the criticism of the negative role models. Um, you know, especially in the Talmud, because the Talmud is literature that was by rabbis, and it was intended for a rabbinic audience. It really was not intended for a popular audience like Dafyobi today, <laughs> right? It emerged from rabbinic <laughs> academies, and it was training manuals, both the law, how to be a rabbi, and what you had to know to be a rabbi, and the Agadah was also telling you how to be a rabbi. It's much more to being a rabbi than being able to adjudicate legal disputes or tell you what you could do on Shabbat. You had to be a pious person, uh, you had to model ethical behavior. You had to know how to deal with all the other people or other realms that the rabbis come in contact with. Um, but as a kind of internal literature, they didn't hesitate to portray rabbis in negative ways somewhat sometimes. And again, that was part of the learning process and for students to learn from. Um, but it's so, it, you know, it had this been intended for a, a non-rabbinic audience, like for in the synagogue, and, and we do have some stories, yeah, not so much in the Talmud, but in other rabbinic documents, where the criticism of rabbis is much less. You know, clearly these stories were meant to portray the rabbis, you know, in much more glowing terms for a popular audience, and maybe in even less realistic terms. But the, 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 the stories of the Talmud, on the one hand, they do have these supernatural events, these miracles, they're clearly not realistic in that sense. But in terms of the way the way rabbis are portrayed, they actually are often portrayed as real, real people with weaknesses, with foibles, you know, who, who do sin. And, yeah, and that's I part of what, what we learn from. Yeah. I think also like the Torah and the Tanakh goes to great lengths to show that even the greatest people in history were flawed. And that's how we can learn from them. And the, that's, I've, I feel like the difference between Judaism and, and Christianity, at least for 2000 years, maybe to the last generation or two, was always to kind of show that we, we don't have this idea of saints. We don't have this idea of perfect people. And there's no, you can't yeah. learn from anyone who's perfect. Whereas in the last maybe a few hundred years with, you know, the, for example, like the Hasidic movement, this kind of um, idea of the tzaddik and the idea of that there's a perfect person that we can aspire to, or we can't even reach that level. 
um, as good as we are, that kind of shifted away from the classical Jewish uh, approach. And the Torah itself, I feel like it's very significant and something ignored. And a lot of people try to, you know, overly defend what, you know, the the patriarchs did. Oh, he didn't really sin. No, I think the Torah is telling us that they made mistakes for a reason. It's not, we shouldn't. A hundred percent. You're right there. I mean, the rabbis continue that from the Torah. They're, they're right. very much in line in the Torah's portrayal of its heroes and protagonists as, as great people, but not not perfect, not saints. Like you say, even Moshe, I mean, the Torah goes out of its way to say he sinned whatever he did, uh, striking the rock, and he died. You know, he, he, was, a, he was a human being in the end. Uh, and the other other patriarchs too, and the Talmud does that with its rabbis for sure. So the story, in other words, when you're when you're reading one of the stories, then you're you're the real question that you want to ask is what is the storyteller trying to communicate to me with this story? You know, he's not trying to just tell you some detail in the rabbi's life or something about him. You're right; he's often not trying to put him on some sort of you know, perfect pedestal as a model we can never emulate and just tell us the great rabbis in the past were part of this age that was so much greater than us and, you know, we're so much inferior to them. It, it, it's really to, to teach us. Um, and, and to do that, you have to read the story as literature and get inside the mind of the storyteller. And, uh, it, you know, this is one of the reasons why I think it's, it's actually... Um, it, it, it's great to study these stories, and so many people love studying these stories. It, it's because it's literature. You know, it's very hard sometimes to uh, wade your way through a complicated halachic discussion in the Talmud. It's abstract and it's legal, and there's so much you have to know, and, and you know, the dialectical back and forth is hard to puzzle out. Um, but but we all read. You know, we read novels, we've, we've read poetry, we read things from day school through high school through college. And, and to read a story is applying some of our, um, some of our expertise and some of our knowledge just in reading and making sense of, of any sort of literature that we read. Very well said, very well said. Um, um, second question, how do you go about navigating through the different versions of Agadot, the different Gersaot? One of the things we notice when we read your book is that context matters in these different versions, especially between Bavli and Yerushalmi, and that they can actually inform one another rather than just being disjointed gear. So if you can elaborate on that, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So this, again, is one of the real um, advantages, I would say, in fact, um, to understanding Talmudic stories as literature uh, and, and as didactic fiction and not as history and biography, because... If you understand them as history or biography, you're taking these different versions that must that might contradict each other, and you're trying to harmonize them and figure out what actually happened. And inevitably, you might consider one of them as right, historically accurate, biographically true, and one is as wrong, as corrupted. Um, a witness reported things differently. But when you're looking at them as literature, you can understand them as different versions of a story told by different storytellers, trying to communicate different lessons or grapple with different problems or addressing what was most pressing in his community, in his synagogue, that might be different from that of another one. So, so, it, so the, it, the first thing you wanna do is try to understand each story independently on its own terms, because each story is a integrated whole. I mean, each story in and of itself 
gives you some message or was told by a storyteller for a, for a, for a certain purpose. So let's say you have a story that appears in one version in the Babylonian Talmud and one version in the Jerusalem Talmud. So you would start by looking at each story um, itself and try to, and just asking the question, what is this story about? What is the story of the Jerusalem Talmud trying to tell us? And then what is the story in the Babylonian Talmud about? What is that trying to tell us? At that point, then the fact that they um, are about the same event or that are multiple different versions of the fundamentally one story um, invites you to compare and contrast them to try to understand the different interests of the storytellers. And that's where it's actually useful to have a second version because if you just have one version, you know, it's sometimes hard to figure out exactly what the story is about. When you have another version and you see, you know, it's very clear that the, the story in the, in the Yerushalmi focuses on this theme, whereas the story in the Bavli focuses on a different theme and that theme from the Yerushalmi has become a minor element then you feel you're on much safer ground as having identified which story is about because you have an alternative version which runs differently and you can identify and, 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 uh, and, and compare the other version with. So at that point, after you've got to your understanding of which each story independently is about, you want to compare and contrast and see what, what becomes different. And then you try to ask yourself, you know, why did the storyteller each storyteller focus on, on a different thing, even if it's very subtle, you know, um, can you understand why the storyteller, the Yerushalmi was interested in X and that in the Bavli more interested in Y? So sometimes, as you mentioned, this might have to do with the context. That is, often the stories appear in different contexts in the two Talmuds. Sometimes they appear in the, you know, roughly the same context, the same chapter of the same tractate. But more often than that, they appear in very different contexts. Uh, it might occur in one tractate in the Bavli and a different tractate in the Yerushalmi. And it seems that, again, different storytellers have focused on these different elements or different themes. And the Talmudic redactors have understood that and used that story to um, relate to a certain legal issue or a certain even ethical issue that comes up in, 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 in a certain tractate. And then the storytellers in the Bavli might have changed that story to focus on a different theme. And that's why it's in a different tractate in, in the Babylonian Talmud. So looking at context will also often help you understand what that story is about, what themes are, are, are most important in, in, in each version. But there are, other, there are many other factors that might come into play. You know, one, one factor is certainly the ambient culture. So in Babylonia, they were in part of the Sasanian Persian Empire. The main, the main religion around them, or the dominant religion, was Zoroastrianism. Um, uh, they were do, dealing with certain ethnic groups, Babylonians, Persians, Mendeans, the others. Um, and uh, and that, that posed certain challenges for the, for the rabbis in Babylonia, as opposed to in the land of Israel, which part of the Roman world at that time, uh, they were dealing with Greco-Roman culture, they were dealing with a very strong Roman empire, and that posed certain challenges to them. So part of the reasons you might have different emphases has to do with just the surrounding uh, culture. Um, and then we also do know that, uh, that the rabbinic um, 
just the rabbinic culture of Babylonia and the land of Israel, even the culture of the different schools, the Batei Midrash, the rabbi schools or the yeshivot. Um, we're a little different in, in, in Babel, in Babylonia and in the land of Israel. That sometimes results in, again, them grappling with uh, different problems. Um, and, um, you know, it's also possible that different centuries, it's very hard to date these stories. That's one of the reasons why it's, uh, it's hard to write biography and history on their basis. But um, you know, the third century was different than the fifth century. You know, we, we understand different challenges uh, occurred at different times. So that might also be a reason why stories deal with different things. So a lot of that is, is, is kind of speculative. You know, those are reasons why the story might change. It's very hard to ground the differences in those because we don't have such a firm grasp on the history. You know, unless the rabbi say is encountering a Zoroastrian priest. I mean, then of course we know one of the problems they're dealing with is, is say Zoroastrianism in Babel. But we do understand that in general, these were different cultures, these were different times potentially, and that might result in differences between uh, the stories. But really the first and the, the, the major um, factors that, that you wanna look at is the story itself, the internal dynamic of the story, and then the context, the literary context, but also to a certain extent relationships to other stories in each Talmud because um, you know, many of the same problems will occur uh, and are, are dealt with in, in multiple sources. Um, a lot of these are just the challenges of human life. Um, uh, how one balances the study of Torah with domestic obligations. And so there are many stories about this and you can look at each story in each Talmud in relation to other stories uh, that deal with similar problems to try to understand common common factors there. Something I, I remember um, in the beginning, I think it's Avon of Achnai, where you mentioned how actually where the Agadah is located on the daf also makes a difference into how you're supposed to understand the story. Yeah, I mean, that's one good example of it because the, the, in, in the, the, this is one of our, our most famous Agadot today. Um, yeah, I, I actually don't even know if it was like most famous in the times of the Talmud. It's very hard to judge that. It's become very prominent today because it's such an interesting uh, story about human authority, divine authority, interpretation, loba shemayim here, not in heaven. You know. But um, in the Babylonian Talmud, that story occurs in Bava Metzia. And it's in the context of the laws of Ona'ah, which is a kind of not insulting people um, not causing them verbal harm. Ona'az, like verbal uh, aggression in a certain sense. And, and that seems to be the emphasis of the Agadah, of that story in the Bavli. The rabbis um, you know, humiliate Rabbi Eliezer and, and, and really come to pay a steep price for that. Um, and one of the lessons that emerges from it and from that context, which includes other traditions right there on the daf, about the importance of not humiliating other people, not insulting other people, um, not using your words, whether it's to your wife or whether it's to another human being, you know, in, in those ways, is the importance of, of, uh, uh, of avoiding that kind of um, you know, violence, verbal violence. But in the Yerushalmi, this story doesn't occur in Bava Mitzvah in that context. It occurs in Moed Katan, 
Uh, and in that tractate, it actually has to do in a section of Talmud that deals with, with the ban. Rabbis like don't accept the majority or recalcitrant in a certain way. Not just rabbis, if other people don't accept rabbinic authority, they can be put under a certain sort under a ban by the community, kind of ostracized as a way to try to put pressure on them to bring them back in line. And, and the story in the Yerushalmi really is trying to communicate uh, a message um, about that. And, and it goes in a very, very different direction. So that's a very good example where the context makes, uh, makes, a big, make, makes a big difference in interpretation. And if you don't pay attention to that literary context, you know, it's easy to miss that. It's easy to, to miss out of that. And, and, you know, going back to our, even sort of touching on our first question, you know, it, it seems like what's happened in this case is because we know the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud is earlier, it's edited earlier, it comes from an earlier period. The Babylonian Talmud went through a long editing process, really into the fifth, sixth, maybe the seventh century. <clears throat> so many of the stories in the Babylonian Talmud are later than those in the Jerusalem Talmud. It looks like the Babylonian Talmudic storytellers had a version of the story similar to that in the Yerushalmi, but they changed it. They added to it. They reoriented the focus of it because they were interested in a different problem, because they were grappling with a different issue. Um, and, and this is one of, again, parts of the good evidence that the stories are didactic fiction. That is, they were um, reworked in a literary process to make them apply to different situations or different concerns of different storytellers. They're not two different people saw a biographical event and, and, and reported it differently. And that's why you have contradictions and tensions. So one story was reworked, was retold in different ways. Uh, it wasn't considered as, um, you know, as historically accurate that you couldn't change it. It wasn't a kind of history. It was there to teach a lesson. And if you could teach a different lesson or you wanted to teach a different lesson, a later storyteller felt free to rework these, these stories according to what was necessary for his time or for his audience. So the multiple contexts that you ask about is, is good evidence it intersects with um, understanding the genre of the stories themselves as a kind of literature, didactic literature, fictional literature that can be reworked, retold, reoriented to, added to for, for different purposes by different storytellers. Yeah, some of the reorientation that you're referring to, like I noticed, is that there would be, let's say in the Yerushalmi, the backdrop would be like a general location, but whereas in the uh, um, Bavli, it would be the Beit Midrash. It would always tie everything to the Beit Midrash. Um, so that's obviously for whatever reason, political reason, social reasons that they're doing that. Um, I'd like you maybe to explain how that works. And also like, obviously the demonology that was part of Babylonian culture is almost completely absent in the Yerushalmi tradition? Yeah, so, so those are two great questions. So the first question is 100% is right. Many of the stories that appear in the Yerushalmi where a location is not really getting and it's not clear there's a setting, uh, or if there is, it could be anywhere. Rabbis are talking to their students in the market or on the street, or occasionally it does mention a Beit Midrash. But they make Beit Midrash seems to be a small school. It's one rabbi and his disciples. It's sometimes what we call a disciple circle. You know, you had one holy man or one rabbi, one teacher, not unlike a Hasidic and his disciples. 
In the Bavli, it's often set in what we think of as a yeshiva. Um, today, you have a large institution, lots and lots of students, multiple rabbis or teachers there, a hierarchy with a rosh yeshiva ahead of the academy, maybe some second in command, third in command. There's a kind of jockeying for positions. Who are the best students? They might have even sat in a kind of hierarchical order with the with the most advanced students toward the front. And rabbis competed. They competed in the Beit Midrash to know the most, to show uh, their, um, their knowledge of Torah, to show their ability to think quickly, to engage in these dialectical debates, to respond to questions that were asked to them. So it seems like all of those motifs that occur most, mostly in the stories or almost exclusively in the stories of the Babylonian Talmud point us to something about late Babylonian culture. Now, this is one of the things that has unfortunately led to massive historical misunderstandings because many of those stories are reworking of earlier stories about the Tanaim, about the early rabbis from the time of the Mishnah. So Rabbi Akiba and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and even Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai, Rabban Gamaliel, some of these early Tanaim from the first century, the second century, in the stories in the Babylonian Talmud occur in these very highly developed institutionalized yeshivas. Um, and that led up many to misunderstand them and to think that these yeshivot already existed in the type of Hillel, in the time of Hillel, in the time of Rabbi Akiba. But again, these are just the Babylonian storytellers reworking stories of their earlier sages in light of their reality in the fifth century, in the sixth century CE, where these uh, where these yeshivot had, had, had developed, where rabbinic culture had, had flourished in that sense. So as far as we know, it's really only in the late stages of the Bavli, maybe toward the end of the Amoraic period, or even in the time of the Talmudic editors, the 400s, 500s, 600s, that these large-scale yeshivot developed, like we had in the Islamic era, like we have in Gaonic times, uh, where we know that there was a very highly developed yeshiva culture. The early rabbis, um, Rabbi Akiba, the Tanaim, even all the rabbis in the Yerushalmi times um, and uh, the first generations in the Bavli did not um, function, did not learn, did not study in these large-scale yeshivot. It was a rabbinic culture, rabbinic learning, rabbinic pedagogy went on on a much, much smaller scale. So you're absolutely right. These, these, some of these most vivid stories about the rabbis in the yeshiva arguing with each other, sometimes being embarrassed like Rabbi Eliezer was, um, jockeying for position and so on, um, having falling outs. Um, sometimes there's tensions between the rabbis and the Rosh Yeshiva. Um, in a couple of the stories of Rabban Gamaliel, they even try to depose him. They try to replace him with varying degrees of success. Um, all of those only occur in the Bavli, and it's from the very, very late strata of, uh, of the Babylonian Talmud. So, you know, here's a good example. We're understanding the stories at, in terms of literary texts, in terms of stories being reworked and comparing them to what their different emphases are, have, have really shed light on a historical historical development. You know, it's not the history in the times of the characters. You're never really getting at the history at the time or the biography of the characters in the stories. You're understanding the history in the times of the storytellers. 
and those are much later rabbis, either in the land of Israel, in, in, um, who are putting together the Yerushalmi, you know, or in Babylonia, the editors of the Babylonian Talmud, occasionally some of the sages of the Babylonian Talmud talked about their predecessors from, from centuries past. In your, in your introduction to your book, Land of Truth, you discuss the relationship between Agadot and the modern reader. You feel strongly about the benefit of learning Agadot and tradition in order to reorient the life of contemporary Jews. Can you elaborate on this idea? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, Agadot are really the way the rabbis talk about everything that's important and some of those larger questions. Um, the Talmud is full of halakha, and of course, halakha is, is central to Judaism, but Halakha doesn't answer kind of those meta questions. You can know every detail about how to observe Shabbat or exactly what you're supposed to say in each of the daily liturgies. But, but that doesn't tell you why you're observing Shabbat or what kind of person all these halachot that you're, um, that you're trying to fulfill are supposed to make you into or even the place of, of uh, a human being in the world. Uh, all those larger questions are addressed and answered by Agadah, by stories. Um, there's a very famous Rashi that, that you might know. The first Rashi on the Torah, the great commentator Rashi, he asks, why does the Torah begin with the story of the creation of the world? Why doesn't it start in Exodus 12? That's where you get the first laws in the context of Yitziat Mitzrayim, going out of Egypt, and you have the laws of Pesach. And Rashi's saying, like, here we know halakha is so important. So, so why, why do I need all these stories about Avraham and about the creation and Yaakov, I mean, Jacob? You know, start with halakha, start with what's uh, crucially important. Rashi gives a certain answer, and I think it has a little more to do with the medieval context. But Rashi's question here is, is fundamental. Why does the Torah start with a whole book of Genesis, which is stories and even has all these stories throughout it? And the real answer is because you have to understand why observing any of the laws of the Torah makes sense. I mean, why should we engage in, 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 in this behavior? And it has to do in the Torah with the fact that God took us out of Egypt and saved us from bondage and gave us the Torah, you know, to achieve certain purposes, make human beings holy. Um, but it, I think it's really the same thing for the Talmud. The Talmud doesn't have a meta-narrative in the way the Torah does, a sort of sequential narrative starting at creation and going through generation by generation. It has kind of fragmented stories, many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of stories that, that are interspersed throughout all the halachot in every tractate. But they really address those larger questions. What are we doing when we observe all these laws? Why should we be observing all these laws? Um, and what ends are we trying to achieve? How does it ultimately make life meaningful? How do we go from where we are to some ideal in the future? What are we aiming for? What are the values that will lead to a uh, meaningful and important life? Um, you know, um, uh, Harold Kushner in one of his books, you know, very popular audience, he has a great line that I think about a lot. He says, people aren't afraid of dying. They're afraid of not really having lived. They're, they're afraid of their lives not really being meaningful. And, and I think this is one of the big problems. You know, I'm not, it's not my idea. I mean, sort of everybody knows this at some level in modern society. 
in small traditional communities, you lived with extended families, right? You had a sense of rootedness, you're connected to your ancestors, you're connected to your family, you're connected to the community. There were certain endeavors everyone was trying to accomplish together, help each other. When people suffered, there were other people there to, to rely on. And, and in the modern world, we've lost that, um, that rootedness. Um, we're in this multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religion, multi-ethnic environment. We're bombarded with different ideas and values and narratives. I mean, we just don't have a sense of what is our personal story. Where do we come from and where are we trying to go and what are we trying to achieve in life and what will make that meaningful? And that's really what many of these stories in the Talmud are trying to answer. So what I was suggesting there in, in, um, in that introduction is um, some of these stories can really help us answer some of those, those larger questions. That's, that's exactly what they're, they're, they're trying to do for the rabbis. So clearly I'm, I'm talking about this for a Jewish audience. I mean, for those who have some connection to Jewish tradition, but again, are, are in this complex, secular, multicultural world of which their Jewish identity is, is just one part of it. Um, but I think this can, can lead to, um, you know, people finding more meaning and finding a path to negotiate this, this life by turning to these stories. Look, the stories, I mean, they were passed down from generation to generation. And although the, the Talmud is a vast literature, um, we have to believe that over the course of hundreds of years, we only have a fraction of the Torah that was produced, that the stories were told, that were told of the legal discussions that the rabbis engaged in. You know, what was passed down was really only the best stuff. It was preserved over the course of generations and centuries because every generation who encountered it found it meaningful and or found it inspirational, found it something that could teach them lessons um, for living. The stuff that wasn't that good, I don't think that was passed down. It just wasn't preserved or transmitted because it wasn't found meaningful. So, you know, just we all negotiate the problems of respecting parents, our obligation to parents, especially as they age, um, sacrificing our own life or well-being to take care of parents when they become increasingly infirm, when they put certain demands on us. You know, you have great stories in the Talmud about something like that. Many stories, in fact, just rabbis, other people, this is a, this is a problem that, that every generation was, was dealing with. And I think that's one example, you know, it's a trivial example where, you know, this will help us, can help us deal with that, that particular uh, issue. So I, I think that uh, that Talmudic stories, not all of them, because some of them do address very specific issues from ages past or very specific issues that the rabbis dealt with, but at least some of them uh, deal with these enduring problems of, of, of just being a human, <laughs> you know, certainly being a Jew, you know, and, um, and, and our, a resource that's not really appreciated. And part of the reason they're not appreciated is that people didn't really know how to study them or, or didn't bother studying them uh, the way they really should have been studied and understood in this, in this didactic way. And not, as you mentioned, Ben, as a kind of hagiographic, these are the great rabbis, we can never aspire to their, their level of uh, uh, holiness. So, you know, this is, I want to say this is the only way to find meaning in life. Certainly not. I mean, lots of people find meaning in different ways. But for those who are looking for a kind of grounding and a kind of narrative to help them 
sort of uh, figure out where they're going from and where they're going to, I, I think uh, Talmudic stories can, Agadic stories really help. There's no doubt that these are timeless stories that every generation get better from, even ours, like you said in the introduction. I highly recommend to everyone listening to, to read Land of Truth. Um, but there is, you know, the, the issue that I have is that most people aren't learning it with the proper methodology. So they're going to end up, especially the modern reader, with the kind of reverse uh, message that was intended. So yeah. are they better off not learning them? Um, at all and, and further kind of distancing themselves from the truth or should they obviously you know should we ch obviously we have to maybe approach the teaching the, the education this the, the way we're kind of passing on the methodology maybe we need to like rethink how we're how we're educating the, the youth yeah no I mean you're 100% right you know I I think um, I mean I think it is <laughs> I don't want to answer that question because uh, is it best not to study them or study them the wrong way? It's best to study them the right way. <laughs> so right. that's that's what we should try to do. And that's, we as scholars, I mean, academics, I think we have a responsibility to try to get this message out. And that was one of the things I was trying to do in my book, Land of Truth, and in another book I have called Rabbinic Stories that also provides translations and introductions to stories. But we clearly haven't done uh, a, a, a good enough job yet. Uh, I do see that it has started to percolate down, you know, in some circles, traditional uh, cir circles and, you know, um, modern Orthodox educators of various sorts have started reading some of the scholarship, not just mine. I mean, there are many scholars who work in this area that have produced great articles and great books. And some of them is, is, is trickling down into the popular culture, just general readers who like to read materials of Jewish interest are, are, are buying these books and are reading these books. I get emails all the time from readers, uh, you know, regular people who have picked up a scholarly book and have, have some question or, or, or uh, you know, express their, their appreciation that they now understand these, these stories in, in a way they hadn't before. But we definitely have to do a better job in popularizing this scholarship and this way of reading. And um, um, so I haven't I haven't quite figured out how to do that, and you know, uh, you know, academic colleagues they have in certain incentives to 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 write for a very specific audience to publish in certain journals to write books for a scholarly audience. That's how they are promoted. That's how they're rewarded. They're not really incentivized to to write for a popular audience, although some do, and some do it very well. But it, it would be better to find ways to, to popularize this kind of uh, scholarship. I mean, I, I, I find people who read scholarly articles, scholarly books, or some of the popular books that have been written really appreciate it. I mean, maybe like you guys <laughs> are a good example. Um, so we got to do more of that. You're right. Professor, have you ever heard of Ruth Calderon? Yeah, so Ruth Calderon is one who has been doing this in Israel. Ruth Calderon actually wrote her PhD with me. Oh, so I, I know her very well. She she was working on it at Hebrew University, but she didn't have anybody who could really help her in the department at that time. They had some retirements or whatever, people who didn't, weren't working on stories. And she actually spent three years in New Jersey. Her husband at the time was there at a certain job. So uh, and I teach at New York University. So 
she would come and meet with me uh, and wrote the dissertation with me. But she is obviously, she'd been involved in this project before trying to popularize Talmud and popularize stories and really does it in an exemplary way. Um, so she's she's one who's been been working in this in this uh, field for sure. Right, for she, sure. she gave that speech to the Knesset where she was using yes. Talmudic stories as a like didactic lessons for the Knesset. And it just yeah. when you were talking about what you were talking about, it just popped into my head that that's exactly like that's like oh sorry about that. Um, that's exactly what you were saying. How she was actually taking Talmudic stories and trying to actually inform like the Knesset through those stories. Lesson. Yeah, that was a great example of it. Yeah, and it went viral, and she actually, this people started participating, and she started talking about how the lesson from that, you know, one Talmudic story is that we have to include other people and open yep. the Beit Midrash. Uh, but that was just that was just one lesson that uh, it, it should be done much more for sure, for sure. Yeah. And also, um, the popular book, The Sages, by Rabbi Lau, that kind of also got us even more interested in this subject because we we're like, wow, you really. Like by humanizing them and putting it in a historic, like I, I guess you don't, you were mentioning the historical cons, uh, um, part of it, but that the fact that he did that, he kind of made us see things in a different light. We never actually appreciated the rabbis that way. So I, I feel like you guys are doing God's work. Yeah, yeah, we're trying. You're not. We're trying, as they say. You know. There's a lot of work to do and life is short, but yeah, but we should do more of it, yes. If you're not trained in being a keen reader of these enigmatic stories, you might end up with very narrow conclusions. Can you speak more generally about the need to read closely and pay attention to every detail with various examples? Yeah, so I mean, you're, that's, that's a very good question and you do have to be a, a very sensitive reader to read these stories. Um, I, I think that's true of, of many forms of literature too. Um, to read a poem and really understand a sonnet or a poem, to read a novel. Um, that's why we have professionals. That's why we have literary critics. That's why we have professors of literature. It's to help us understand, um, again, Shakespeare, Jane Austen, any body of literature. Um, so, um, so Talmudic literature is one form of literature. And one thing I think that's also really important to understand is that Talmudic literature and Talmudic stories, I mean, the halakha too, all of Talmud, but Talmudic stories are oral. They're oral literature. They're part of the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral Torah. And this was preserved orally until the Gaonic period, until the Islamic period, until the eighth or ninth century. Throughout the Talmudic period, all of rabbinic literature was oral. There's sometimes a misunderstanding about this. They say Rabbi Yehuda Anasi wrote down the Mishnah or the stories, the Talmud was written down. It was all uh, memorized. It's very hard for us to understand because we um, function in a literate culture and we don't put a lot of stock in developing our memories and memorization because we don't have to. We can pick up books. We can access things on the internet now. But in um, pre-modern times, I mean, really before they developed the printing press, writing was very hard to come by. So even in the Middle Ages, when you had literature and manuscripts, still a lot more was memorized. But certainly in the Talmudic period, Torah Shabal Peh meant Torah Shabal Peh. Oral Torah meant oral Torah. Um, so no one was, was really studying these, these stories from a text 
from a book. Um, they were learning them and they were reciting them from memory. Now, the reason why this is important is that oral literature is formulated very, very tersely for mnemonic purposes. You can't have long digressions, long descriptions, uh, just for the sake of entertainment or for filling things out because these things cannot be memorized. Uh, and most Talmudic stories, I mean, are, are so brief, so terse. Uh, they could be 50 words, 100 words, um, even some of the more highly developed uh, Talmudic stories. Now, what that means for the reader is that every detail is important mm. because no detail was there just for the sake of describing the character so you'd have a more accurate description of what you know what he or she looked like or for, again for entertaining the audience. Um, in fact, it's they're they're so brief, they're so terse that it puts a very heavy onus on the audience. It would have been oral for us, of course, now it's written to, to try to fill in some of those gaps that the storyteller either didn't think was important or assumed the reader would be able to understand. Or what's also possible is that, although let's say in the Talmud, the story was formulated in a very brief way, again, for mnemonic purposes so that students could memorize it. When some rabbi was actually teaching that student, that story to his students or in some sort of forum, he himself elaborated on that story that is embellished it. You know, maybe he knew some of the details from, from his study or was again passed down in some other form. So what we are given in many cases is like a skeletal outline of a story that was probably fleshed out and told in more detail when it was actually being told. But for us, what that means is in, for the reader, on the one hand, that makes it harder. On the other hand, it makes it easier. It makes it harder because we wish to know a lot more and um, they're just sometimes puzzling, but it makes it easier because it means that every single detail that the storyteller gives you is important. He's not wasting words. Uh, so if, if, this, if a character is described in any way, a particularly ugly man, a woman with long hair, whatever it is, you know that detail is important and you know that detail has got to figure in the story. And if it doesn't figure in the story the way you notice, well, you should go back and try to figure out why that character was described in that way. There must be some, there must be some reason, uh, some reason to it. So, you know, I'll give you a few examples of this. Um, you know, there's a, there's a story about a certain rabbi. He goes away to the Beit Midrash to study for many years, and he comes home after many years. Part of the this story deals, well, there are, there are actually several stories like this, but, you know, deals with the problem of engaging in Torah study as opposed to being there for your wife and family, domestic responsibilities as opposed to the study of Torah. The rabbi, one of these stories is about a rabbi named Hanania ben Chakinai or Hanina ben Chakinai. And when he comes home, he actually can't find his way home. And the way he finds, he gets home is he, he, he hears someone calling out to a, a maiden who's, who's at the well. And, and they say, daughter of Chakinai, fill your picture and go home. And then he trails her home, and that's how he, how he, how he finds his house. I mean, part of this is to, is to indicate how long he's been away that he can't even remember how how to get home. But if you don't pay close attention, you might just think that's all there is to it. But if you pay close attention, she's referred to as daughter of Chakinai. He is Rabbi Hananya ben Chakinai, so she should be daughter of Hananya. But she's called daughter of Chakinai, in other words, daughter of the grandfather. So her very name 
manifests this absence, the fact that her father has been away for so long, she's essentially lost the connection to the father and he's lost his kind of you know, parental identity in that sense. And she's now identified in terms of his father, the grandfather might have been home helping raise her. So just a very subtle thing the storyteller uh, puts in there. Criticism? Is that a pointed criticism? It is. The story is, it's not, it's hard to know if it's criticism because the stories are really grappling with the problem there. Uh, the problem, and the, the rabbis think to, a study of Torah is a great value. And in some cases, you might have to go away to the yeshiva, especially in the old days, travel was hard. Geographical distances are, are, are fast and be away from home for years to study. On the other hand, it does take a toll on your on your on your wife as a rabbi and your children. So it's an it's it's less than criticism. It's an indication of what's being lost. Right. It's bringing out both. It's like yeah, it, I see what you're saying. I see. It's a trade off. You you yeah. want to study Torah, fine, but you're going to lose your connection to your daughter. People won't even identify her as your daughter. Maybe that's the right choice. Maybe it's not. Uh, some of the stories on this regard are very critical of the rabbis. Some are less critical, but it's just a way of kind of indicating, you know, what happens in this sort of circumstance. And again, a very small detail, but something, you know, you might you, you would want to pay attention to. Or again, I was working on a story that has to do with the principle of judge every person favorably. Don the kafzut, right? Um, don't suspect that person of of of, of, of failings or sins. So it's, it, the story, this is in Masechet Shabbat, um, uh, talks about a man who works for three years for a homeowner. He hires himself out, signs a contract to work for three years. At the end of that time, he asks the Balabite, the homeowner, for his wages. He says, give me my money. And, and the uh, homeowner says, I have none. He says, okay, pay me in land. He says, I have no land. He says, pay me in animals. He says, I don't have animals. He says, pay me in fruit. I don't have fruit. Pay me in blankets and cushions. I don't have that. And so he basically doesn't pay him. And this, this homeowner goes home you know, devastated. He'd worked for three years. Um, but, in the, but then in the end, he, the, the, the whole point is that this worker thinks that the balabait, the homeowner, has a good reason not for paying him. He's leased out his money. He's Lease his land. He's he's used all his money in a business venture. Whatever he was judged him favorably, and you know that's the whole the point of the story. This is really suspicious behavior that you would think he's just trying to rip him off or take advantage of him and not pay him. Like you know, he's looking at the fruit and the animal, so on. Anyway, the story begins with a very subtle note. It says there was once a story, uh, the story of a worker who came down from the Upper Galilee to the south. And he hired himself out to this homeowner for three years. And it also gives you a little temporal data. It says, on the eve of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he asked for his money. And he doesn't get it. And then it's after Sukkot, the homeowner comes and pays him off. Now, those temporal data, when it happened, and the geographic data seem like peripheral or marginal to the story. The story would work perfectly well without them. You didn't have to tell where he lived, or you didn't have to tell what time of year it was. But you have to ask yourself, why did the storyteller throw in those details? So they, they really add a lot to the story, because the fact that the, the, the worker came from the upper Galilee down to the south to find work probably indicates he's very poor. 
he couldn't find work nearby. It means he was probably unable to visit his wife and, and children during those three years because he was so far away. And it also indicates that when he goes back home, he's got to travel for several days. And you can imagine him traveling for days with this terrible news to his, to his wife and his children. I, I actually don't have any wagers. You know, so it just enhances kind of his mag magnanimity in, in thinking this uh, homeowner did not rip him off, but also the poignancy of his experience. And likewise, when he goes home, Yom Kippur, of course, the day of judgment, when you would think of sin and, and, uh, and trying to do mitzvot and what's kind of foremost in his mind at that time, and yet the homeowner doesn't pay him then. And Yom Kippur is the day of judgment that intersects a little bit with judge everyone favorably, which he did. Uh, but also he goes home and, and the homeowner also pays him after Sukkot. So we're supposed to imagine him trying to celebrate Sukkot, Zvan Simchatenu, the time of rejoicing where we most want to be feasting and he was looking so forward to that festival week with his family. And he comes home with nothing. And you can imagine them trying to celebrate Sukkot without his wages. And again, it's only after that uh, his, uh, his contractor comes and pays him off. So again, very subtle details. And again, the story could work without them. But uh, by paying attention to them, it really enhances your appreciation of the, the story and what the storyteller is trying to communicate. And he does it so briefly and so tersely. He doesn't go into long paragraphs as a novelist would with, by telling you the emotional state of this worker when he came home and how devastated he was and what he said to his family. I mean, we're supposed to kind of imagine that based on just the fact that it was during this time of year. You know, or again, just one other example, just as we, it's very famous, the stories of Hillel and Shammai, they're approached by Gentiles, and the Gentiles say, you know, convert me standing on one leg, or they ask them other questions that are unreasonable. And Hillel is very patient and kind of responds in a very patient and nice way, and Shammai's, you know, more uh, <laughs> uh, impatient and, and kind of rude almost. Anyway, the, the story says that at one point, one of these Gentiles who comes to Shammai and says, convert me uh, uh, while I'm standing on, on one leg, says Shammai drove him away with the builder's cubit that was in his hand, with the ruler, the measuring rod that was in his hand, right? So we imagine, you know, Shammai trying to strike him, you know, driving him away. What kind of a preposterous, ridiculous condition is this? Convert me while I stand on one leg. But again, it's a very subtle form of characterizations because why is Shammai holding that builder's cubit? Why did he have that builder's cubit in his hand? Well, again, it's telling you he routinely had this implement because that was probably his common practice. He was always impatient. Oh. He was almost always, he had this ready in his hand because whether it was a student or an obnoxious questioner, or a Gentile who came with this sort of uh, demand, he was ready, and they, you know, was always ready. So again, it characterizes Shammai as someone who does have a lack of patience and is not gentle and so on, just by that one little description. So really every word uh, that the storyteller communicates, you have to pay attention to. Um, well, it's and, like, a, um, yeah. it's like uh, um, as they say in the, in the literary world that, it's showing, not telling, right? So that's kind of what's happening over there. Yeah, that's a very good good point. This is all showing. If the if the narrator says anything, it's like one brief statement. Again, just to focus you on something, you know. There's one story. It says, yeah, you know, 
Rebbe, whatever his name, Elazar, Elazar ben Dordaya, there was not one prostitute in the world who we had not visited. That's the extent of Betelik, and that tells you everything you need to know about this man <laughs> for the purposes of that story. Right? But that's all you're going to get for characterization. Now, that's very clear. You know, it's, it doesn't take a genius to understand how this man is being characterized, okay? But really, uh, every detail is important. But like I said, because the stories are so brief, you know, once you get attuned to asking yourself, why is this told? Why is this description here? Um, why is this city mentioned? Um, it does open your mind to being in, interpret uh, the stories, I think, at a much higher level that, that you might expect. Yeah, and, and Bensi mentioned before in this question that you might end up with very narrow conclusions. Like one of them that came to mind was one of the stories in the book Land of Truth, where you discuss the rabbi uh, who was seduced by his wife, th you know, thinking that she was someone else. Mm -hmm. His name escapes me. Um, so that you can kind of end up with a conclusion that, you know, celibacy is the ideal, but if mm -hmm. you if you really dig in deep, it's saying that no, that's going to lead to you know what it led to. What it led to <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. maybe you can give us a little bit of that story because I think it's very interesting. Yeah, well, well, this this seems to be this is about a rabbi who um, you know apparently thinks that sexuality is connected to desire and the yetsur hara, the evil inclination, as as it often is. Right? We often lust and we often have desires for illicit sexuality over and above what's licit or what's permitted. Uh, so this rabbi seems to have taken it to an extreme um, and has essentially, although he's married and his wife is there, has taken what we would might call a vow of celibacy, not a formal vow, but a, a resolution to, uh, to not engage in sexual relations at all because he associates them so strongly with the, with the evil inclination. Um, and his wife hears him praying once more at one time, you know, may God save me from the evil inclination. And by this, she understands that it's not that he's unable to have sex. You know, he's gotten so old, but that he's fighting this battle every day. She had not even appreciated this. So, um, uh, she sets out to to seduce him one day, dressing up like a, a, a prostitute and, and uh, walking before him when he's studying. And in the end, does succeed. He's overpowered by his his lust that he's been trying to just his normal you know sexual feelings that he's trying to suppress for so long, uh, and ends up uh, having sex with her. Then he feels horrible about this, and he goes and he jumps into an oven trying to burn himself, you know, punish himself for this, for this illicit sexual act that he's committed. Now, the wife at that point reveals herself to him. So it turns out it was actually a permitted sexual act because it wasn't a prostitute, it was his lawfully wedded wife. Um, so in fact, he hasn't sinned, or at least hasn't sinned in, in, in the classic form of sin that is committed an illicit act, but he's intended to do it kind of as a, as a function of this failed effort at, at, at celibacy. And, and the end of the story is, you know, he seems to have killed himself in, in this oven. What's interesting here is that some printed versions of the Talmud, you know, we use a printing of the Talmud that was printed in Vilna in the 19th century. It goes back to earlier printings. And sometimes um, this printed version is a little corrupt. It was Talmud manuscripts. Um, that were preserved from the Middle Ages, sometimes preserve better readings. And sometimes the, the printed version is either censored or 
along the lines of what we were saying before, it doesn't like to portray rabbis in quite as negative ways as they're sometimes portrayed in the Talmudic stories themselves. So the printed versions give a little more optimistic ending that he didn't actually kill himself. But in this t the real version of the story, in all the manuscripts, he ends up killing himself. So what the, the storytellers seem to be saying here is that he you know, wrongly associated all sex with the evil inclination and, and aspired to celibacy. Perhaps it seems to be under the influence, perhaps, of Christianity of the time. You know, this story might be uh, anti-Christian polemic. Again, this didn't really happen. This is a fictional story that ends in disaster. But the storytellers seem to say, you know, celibacy is not really a viable option for human beings. And this rabbi did the wrong thing by taking on this kind of marital uh, celibacy. And, you know, here this, the, the, the storytellers are really brilliant because they have the story sinned. They have the rabbi sin in order to suggest that he was on the wrong path, but they can't, even the Talmudic storytellers can't quite bring themselves, at least in this case, to really have the rabbi engage in relations with the prostitute. So the prostitute is the wife. Uh, so it's very paradoxical. It's, it's a sin. honor to some extent. Yeah, he intended to sin. He didn't really sin. Don't think he really would have done it. It was his lawfully wedded wife. But they're telling you he was really on the wrong path. That this kind of uh, celibacy is 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 not really viable and not really preferred. And you know, I, I don't have to tell tell anybody today the problems that the Catholic Church is dealing with these days with the sexual abuse scandals and so on. You know, um, you know, there might be something to be said for this Talmudic story, but certainly it's coming at from a Jewish perspective and probably addressing either Christianity or rabbis who are influenced by, by Christian holy men who are trying to engage in these vows of celibacy um, at the time and, and trying to distance the audience from that, yeah. Wow. Amazing. It also could be addressing, you know, sinning in thought and not versus sinning in, act, sinning in action, which yeah. is really, really what the sin is. And it's kind of saying, like, stop creating these extra offenses like Chava and the, you know, not touching the tree as opposed to not eating from the tree. So we have this idea in Judaism, uh, don't, yeah. don't, don't, be, don't be a fanatic, basically. That's right. That's certainly part of what the story is going on. And in the context there, it exactly deals with, with that sort of issue. So, yeah, taking, you know, trying to distance yourself in, in permitted ways. If you treat the permitted as prohibited, you'll ultimately violate the prohibited. Exactly, exactly. Fascinating. So uh, when we think of Choni Hamagel, which we brought up before, it conjures up images of a miracle worker, but we miss out on the messages that these stories about Choni are actually trying to convey. Can you tell us what are the ideas and the stories of Choni that the Talmud is trying to communicate with us? Well, sure. I mean, Choni, actually, we're, we're familiar with one of the stories that he may have got his name from, Choni the circle drawer, where he draws a circle and prays for rain and kind of tries to, you know, uh, almost uh, extort rain from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, from God, by saying, I'm not leaving the circle till you make it rain. But there's actually another famous story about Choni, um, which is the Rip Van Winkle story. Choni doesn't quite understand uh, a certain verse, and he ends up sleeping for 70 years. Uh, and um, just before he goes to sleep, he sees a... Um, a man planted carob trees and carobs take 
70 years or many decades to, to, uh, to produce fruit. And he asked this man, um, why are you planting these carrots, you know, these trees? Are you going to see their fruit? And he says, the man tells him, um, just like my ancestors, my grandparents planted for me, so I'm planting for my grandchildren. And at that point, Cloney goes to sleep, again, for other reasons too. He sleeps for 70 years. He wakes up and he sees the, the grandchild actually taking from this fruit and it communicates this lesson to him um, in a very vivid way. So, uh, I mean, this part of the story, on the one hand, is, is telling us that all the generations are interconnected. We benefited from previous generations. We benefit future generations. There's kind of an economy of benefit, but it's not always that we're benefit in the same generation that benefits us, right? It goes across uh, across the course of time. And Cloney, again, doesn't seem to understand this. So he's given a real life lesson in this surreal way where he not just abstractly or intellectually understands that two generations from now, the, the man's grandchildren long after he dies will, will in fact benefit from his efforts, even though he himself, that grandfather, weren't. You know, that's something we can communicate and we can all understand. But Honey actually experiences that. And that's part of the function of the story of this 70 year sleep. By the way, here's another just miraculous or supernatural event, like we were mentioning before, in terms of telling you these are fictional stories. I don't think anybody would want to defend this as a true biographical account of someone who slept for 70 years and then woke up. <laughs> Hard to take that position these days. Um, but what's interesting about the story is the story goes on and it tells us that story that Honey goes to his home and um, announces here he is after all these years and, and they can't believe it's Honey. And they, and they don't really believe him because he hasn't been there for two generations. And he, he goes to the Beit Midrash and in the rabbinic house of study, even though he hears them quoting him and quoting his Torah and his traditions, when he announces that it's him, in flesh and blood, again, they don't believe him and they don't give him the respect that he deserves. They don't give him the kavod, the honor that he deserves as a great rabbi because they, they can't believe he is who he is. And in the end, this is just so devastating to, to that he asks, he prays for death and he dies. So it's a, it's a tragic story in a certain sense and it's a very dark story. Um, you know, it's, it's communicating many lessons, but the, the lessons in the end, I think, are, are this sort of, on the one hand, it's the fact that, you know, we really do depend on being honored and having a certain dignity. And as we age, I mean, Honey's very old by the time he comes back, it, it comes with a sort of loss of dignity. People nobody, no, no longer respect him, um, no longer treat him with honor, don't give him his rightful place in the academy because new generations have come, great scholars, and, and it's something that we really experience today as we see our parents or grandparents or ourselves age. Uh, we become weak, we become infirm, we lose our honor and dignity, and a lot of times we become very lonely. Honey seems to be lonely. No one, uh, all his friends have died over the course of two generations. So when you increasingly experience this world in a, st a state of loneliness and, and in a way that time has passed, so they don't really understand us and we don't understand them. The generation gap, in other words, has happened. And, and many, many people as they, they age find themselves sort of not understanding the world about them as it's changed. So, you know, I think the story is really dealing with those grappling with that problem of aging, of time passing. Um, you know, human culture goes forward, history goes forward. 
the, the students in the Beit Midrash is thriving, but Choni is alienated. And as, as people age, they can be increasingly lonely and alienated. So one of the things the story is doing is sort of kind of ma manifesting that truth. And it's, you know, these stories of time travel, I mentioned Rip Van Winkle, who also goes to sleep for 20 years, a very famous American folktale. But you have these in almost every culture. There's articles on Korean literature, Russian literature, ancient Christian literature, African literature of these people who sleep, go to sleep for many years. It clearly addresses a deeply, very human kind of paradox of the passing of time and aging. And we'd all like to see our legacy, let's say. And we'd all like to be able to live generations in the future and see how, how human society and human culture develops, what our place might be, what our grandparents are doing. Um, and, and some of these stories have the protagonists live in that future age, but at least in the Choni story, this dark ending, tragic ending, I think tells us this kind of careful what you wish for. It might not be so great to live generations into the future. And you might think that's, that would be something we all wish for, who wants to die after all? Um, but, um, but it might also be really disappointing and, and um, you know, and very difficult to actually live in that future age when time has kind of progressed and, and, and you yourself have it. So this is kind of an early science fiction time travel story in a certain sense, but, but really addressing, you know, certain very, very human fantasies, desires, things we wonder about in terms of the passage of time and where that leaves us. And I, I think like in the book, I mean, I try to, I tie the, the, that little episode of the carob tree where where Choni is taught this lesson by the farmer who's planting for future generations. And he says, just like I, my parents, my grandparents, previous generations planted for me, so I plant for these future generations. I mean, I, I tie that a little bit to environmental concerns today and global warming. The fact that future generations may no longer have a lot of things due to the way our generation is acting. Uh, just like we had, you know, an environment that, that functioned and seas full of fish and a whole lot of animal species, you know, two generations from now, it doesn't seem like our, our descendants will have a lot of those things, you know, as we continue to pollute the seas and cause all these uh, extinctions and the polar caps being disappearing and all the Arctic life will be disappearing. So I don't think that's exactly what the story is about. Obviously, environmental ethics and our ability as a species to destroy the environment is, a, is a largely a modern problem. It's, that wasn't foremost in the storytellers' minds as they told that story. But I think, again, that's a meaning we can take away from it. There was a concern for future generations. And in our day and age, one of the main areas where we are failing future generations has to be, do with the, the issue of the environment. So I think it is certainly a modern uh, application of, of the story and you know, what the storyteller would say if he lived in today's day and age, he would say that's that's certainly one of the things that uh, this story is also about. Or even like um, artificial intelligence and not being, you know, putting in the proper measures to uh, to manage it, you know, letting it get out of control. So I think those are also issues that we can relate to. Um, I wanted to actually touch upon a different aspect of the Choni stories, the fact that when he does the miracles, uh, I don't remember which one of the rabbis it was, maybe Ramir, but I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, but they actually criticized him for doing the miracle. Yeah. 
And yeah, so, yeah, go on. So it, it almost seems like they did not appreciate the fact that, uh, like, the rabbis are instituting, started instituting, you know, the process of prayers and, you know, and Choni Maga comes, draws a circle and the rain comes down. It's almost like an affront to their, to their entire institution. Right. Yeah. The Which, no, you're right. I mean, that's you're going back to the rainmaking story. Yeah, the rain sure, story. In that story, Shimon ben Shetach. Oh, sorry, I said Romero. Yeah. Right. Yeah, who's one of the early rabbis does criticize Honi, and the story kind of criticizes Honi too because it's very ambivalent toward his uh, abilities. On the one hand, he does succeed in making it rain in the end, so the rabbis recognize that at least some people are able to uh, generate rain, and, and God will listen to them like that. But if you pay attention to the story, the first time it kind of rains too lightly and the second time too heavily. Um, he doesn't make it rain the way it should rain right away. And the third time when it finally he keeps having to talk to God, I didn't mean it like this. I didn't mean like it when, he first, when it finally rains the way he wants it, it doesn't stop raining. So he succeeds, but he fails. And then Shimon ben Shetach does criticize him. So you're right. This, this really expresses a kind of rabbinic ambivalence probably to non-rabbis, these itinerant holy men, some non-rabbinic figures um, who had some cultural capital, who had some following in their day and age, magicians um, who the rabbis might have considered, you know, not, not really the appropriate way to go about piety and um, prayer and, uh, but they could, but, but, you know, they recognize their power to some extent. So they do know, they do, they do respect the fact that Honey and in other stories, people like him yeah. sometimes do have these supernatural abilities. They can't totally reject that because God does seem to indulge them. But at the same time, you're right. They're criticizing them. They're, they're going about these things the wrong way. You know, they're speaking in kind of a ways to God that are chutzpah. You know, I'm not getting, leaving this circle till, uh, till it rains. It's a mirror image of, in a way, to uh, the story of Eliyahu Navi in the Tanakh. Yeah, they mention that in, in the Talmud versions of the story, exactly. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah no, they play off of that a little bit, yes. right? And, um, yeah, and like you say, Ben, they should be going about it through prayer, through fasting. It's in Masechatani, Tractatani there. That's the appropriate way to bring rain, not by drawing a circle and standing in it and saying you're not going to move out until it's rain comes. Like, it's almost like when you were when when you were saying the carob tree story. I wonder if that kind of has has some type of overtone, because the whole point, in a way, is is that Honey wants everything now, right? Yeah. It'd be similar in a way to saying I'm making a circle, give me rain, right? Yeah. And the and the on the old man with the carob tree telling him that that's not the way it works. Things yeah. have a process. You know, you can't That's just a good point. gratification. You can't just, you, it, not everything just happens now, right? Like there's, yeah. there's a process at hand. You can't always yeah. just jump, jump the, jump the line, you know? And yeah, exactly. That kind of goes together with the miracles in a way with the, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I think what's happened is another storyteller has, uh, you know, who knew that story of Honey and the, the rainmaking, which is early. That's already in the Mishnah. You know, the story we mentioned about the Caribs is in the Talmud has used that motif and that character of Honey again, for a different purpose. He's engaged this issue of uh, planning for future generations, and he's dealing with the issue of the environment and thinking of that, and then the issue of the time. And um, 
you know, one's legacy of the future and, and not being given sufficient dignity and honor. And he's, he's taken that character and told another story about him in that sense. Well, yeah, and also um, related to that last point we made, I actually wanted to just clarify that the Torah is constantly trying to downplay these miracle workers, even to the point of saying that if prophets start, you know, presenting us with all these crazy miracles, we, sh we don't believe them based on those things. Yeah. And I think that's maybe the criticism that we're seeing there. And one, a friend of mine actually recently um, touched on this idea. Maybe it's a little controversial, but it, it rang true to me that, you know, like people venerate uh, uh, the legacy of certain modern rabbis, like let's say the Baba Sali. And not to say anything bad about him because we don't we don't know anything about him. The truth is, everything is just stories, like a flying carpet and really magical mm -hmm. stories. And the question we you know that was posed that he posed to some people was, "Tell me some Torah you learned from him." And yeah. nobody and nobody has it. Nobody's able right. to produce it. So they're just stuck with it. So where is that 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 instinct? It's almost like an idolatrous in, instinct to kind of glorify these people. Um, to to level of you know almost being perfect, so we see that here. I think the same thing is occurring where the rabbis are kind of telling us like this is not what we do. We don't yeah we don't glorify these things. Yeah, I mean that's a great point. I mean this is one one story among many. Like we said, where the rabbi is a, is a negative role model. Um, the way Choni brings rain is definitely not the preferred way, and certainly his sort of naivete of talking to the man who's planting the carrots. I mean, he's taught a lesson there, but what he expresses, like, why are you bothering to, to plant these, these trees when you're not gonna benefit them? You know, that's clearly a kind of myopic way of uh, approaching life. And, and Tony is, is taught a lesson through this miraculous sleep, but the lesson is for us, but certainly he's not glorified in this story, or really the opposite. Yeah, if only we had more time on this, because I feel like there's so much, like even the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai story coming out of the cave and criticizing the man in the field. We can do this again. Yeah, yeah. We, eventually we'll have <laughs> yeah, look, we, we could talk an hour about any of these stories and have a long series. I mean, that's one of the reasons I say they're so enriching, as, as we've talked about. They give us a lot to think about. They're not simple. They're complex. And it's these great stories that have been preserved in the Talmud over the generations because they were great, because they were complex, because they were reworked in ways to improve them over the generations. We just got the best stuff. And the, the stuff yeah. that wasn't that good kind of dropped out along the way. And like you said, it, it's learning this way actually made us appreciate the rabbis so much, the sages so much more, their foresight, their brilliance. Like it's, yeah. it's so much great. Like learning from this lens, it's so much greater. I mean, at least for, I could speak for us, yeah. you know, yeah. we feel this way. Well, uh, you know, it's also, it's also things that we can relate to, you know, because the rabbis are preserved or portrayed in very human ways. Sure. Uh, and we're, and we're human too. And it, it's, it's sometimes hard to relate to someone who's perfect and does miracles and never makes a mistake and yeah. so on. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you.